You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. All right, quiet on the set. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. So Steve, I have a question for you. Sure. New Year's Eve, are you a for or against? <laughs> you know, I like to stay home, be quiet, <laughs> watch a good movie, ring it in. Okay. I- I'm not a big, not a big go out and party guy at yeah, all. How yeah. about you? You know what? I would say in general that's true for me too. Although there was one particular New Year's Eve when I was in high school, a friend of mine named Barb She had a party at her house. I think it was my junior year. And she had it in the basement with for everybody, boys and girls. And as midnight was approaching, all the girls kind of realized, you know, at midnight, we're going to get to kiss anybody that we wanted to kiss all these years that we've known them with no pressure or expectation. What school did you go to? Catholic school. Maybe, no, it wasn't Catholic. I went to Catholic grade school. This was public school. Maybe I was the only girl thinking that, but I was thinking, oh, good, I'm going to get to kiss him and him and him, and I'm not going to have to, you know, have any expectation of dating them. or Sadie Hawkins New Year's. (laughs) So it's always held a special place in my heart for that reason. Well, who did you kiss? I'm not going to tell. A girl never tells. A girl never tells. Yeah, but but I do remember. Um, So that brings us to what we're going to be talking about today, which is films that are about or set around New Year's. Of course. You know, we we did Halloween, we did Christmas. Let's do New Year's because there's surprisingly more movies than you think that center around New Year's. And we're going to try and hit some of the ones that you might not have at the top of your list. Yes. Some newer ones. My first film is called The Moon's Our Home from 1936. Which is a movie that I have never heard of. See, I feel like I should win some special prize for that because if you've never heard of it, stump the band. Yeah, stump the band. 
So this is a film directed by William A. Sider, who did not have a, a huge career, but the film is based on a serialized novel by Faith Baldwin, and it's written by Boyce Degas and Isabel Dawn, with additional dialogue by Alan Campbell and Dorothy Parker. Oh, interesting. So if you notice, there were a couple of women that I just mentioned in that list of writers, which was unusual in some respects for, for the film industry in general. Yes, in But in, respects, in 1936, yes. Yeah. That was, you know, I think it's very cool that they had so many women involved. In addition to the film editors, Dorothy Spencer, oh, who is yes. quite a famous She's editor. very famous editor, yes. A four-time Oscar nominee and worked with people like John Ford and Joseph Mankiewicz. And, and when you see the opening scene of this film, it definitely feels like there's a female influence. Margaret Sullivan sporting pants, <laughs> which it just kind of really struck struck me as I was watching it. You know, it's 1936, and yes, Catherine Hepburn, you know, made of that course. famous. But Margaret Sullivan plays a famous actress named Cherry Chester. <laughs> now, that is a made-up name in the story. Her real name is Sarah Brown. And Margaret's character has a habit of having tantrums when something doesn't go her way because she's a very famous actress. And in this opening scene, she just wants her freedom from her career, and she wants freedom from her grandmother, who is sending her multiple telegrams, asking her to come back to New York because she wants her plain Sarah Brown granddaughter back. So the film sets up that she is quite a good actress on and off the screen. So she's being <laughs> interviewed by a women's magazine looking for this famous actress's wisdom about life. And she throws this glamorous dress over her pants. <laughs> and so you see her talking to this magazine journalist, and they're waiting on bated breath to hear what she says. And she describes this biggest desire in her life is to fall in love with a man you don't know and who doesn't know you. <laughs> now... There is some truth to that, as we'll see later in the film. I think at the time she was saying it just to be provocative. But this is the setup where Henry Fonda uh, comes in. Now of he, course. He plays a famous author by the name of Anthony Amberton, boy explorer. So his books are all about adventure and outdoors. And he ends up on the same train as Margaret Sullivan, who is indeed heading to New York because the final telegram from her grandmother implied that she was dying. Ah, that old trick, isn't. of course. Yeah. So neither Margaret Sullivan's character nor Henry Fonda's character want to be seen by the public. They hear that each other is on the train because there's a lot of people around, but neither one knows who the other person is. Oh. So Margaret Sullivan's character doesn't read adventure novels that made Henry Fonda's character famous, and Henry Fonda's character never goes to the movies, so he doesn't know who Cherry Chester is. And in fact, he goes on to say, marshmallow-faced movie stars make me sick. <laughs> Give me the simple, primitive woman with a small, high chest. Oh. Which is a rather shocking thing to say. I think I know how he meant that, but we'll just leave that be. Oh, Henry. So neither uh, character wants to be seen by their public. So they hide away in their individual compartments. And there's this wonderful scene on the train. It's sort of what I would call the first split screen, even though that technology wasn't available. I think they probably built the set and each one is talking about the other. The overlapping dialogue and the quick banter is wonderfully played and it's all in one take. So oh, wow. it's, it's really a wonderful scene that's to so see. Cool. So they finally arrive in New York City and that's where they meet. Henry Fonda's character is being chased by his fans and so he jumps onto this carriage literally a horse-drawn carriage in New York City, because that's what you do, right? You just drive around in New York with your right. horse-drawn carriage. And she's she's cruising around trying to remain 
incognito as well. So finally meeting face to face, they still don't know that the other is famous. Ah, clever. They end up running away together to the country and there's a wonderful scene of them skiing, which was actually shot in Big Bear. And it takes place around New Year's Eve. When Margaret falls down while skiing, they place a bet because she's got her long skis on. They place a bet that she can't get up with her skis on. (laughs) And if she can't, they will marry. This is the bet. That's how they decide these things. Yes. So I'm going to let you discover the rest of the plot on your own. <laughs> but the film does have a wonderful supporting cast, Beulah Bondi, who we've talked about oh, before. Oh, we love Beulah Bondi. She plays Mrs. Boyce Medford, the personal assistant to Margaret Sullivan's character. Charles Butterworth plays Horace Van Steeden, who's this dullard that wants to marry Margaret. And a very young Walter Brennan in a small role. You don't really recognize uh-huh. his face. But that voice, that voice, the minute you hear it, you're like, that's Walter Brennan. <laughs> oh, how cool. It's been called one of the least seen and least known of the classic screwball comedies. And I will say it depicts kind of a volatile relationship also off screen because Margaret Sullivan was married to Henry Fonda for a very short time. Yes. She also went on to marry yes. the director William Wyler and Leland Hayward. And it has a happy but slightly... Mm, maybe more than slightly disturbing ending, at least to my feminist sensibilities <laughs> and what happened to Miss Sullivan in later years, because she did yes, have a rather tragic, a very tragic life. life. But it's definitely worth seeing for her performance, which is fresh and naturalistic in a way that the 30s style, which we love, of course, yes. but that archness that was popular during the day, there's none of it in her performance. For those that don't know, she's probably best known for The Shop Around the Corner, another wonderful holiday film. And she died of an overdose way too young. But it's a really sweet film. And I think it's worth watching for her beautiful performance. Oh, she was so great. And she was, she was, you, you nailed it. She was so naturalistic in her acting style, which was ahead of the curve, I think. Agreed. So that is The Moon's Our Home. Well, I'm going to check it out. And thank you. You just gave me this DVD of it. So I get to watch it. Okay, good. All right. What you got? <laughs> well, my first New Year's oriented movie is... It was very little known until TCM. wasn't everything. Everything was little known until TCM. Yes, yes. But it's a great True. film noir with these magical elements called repeat performance from 1947. Oh, I can't wait to see this. I have not seen it, but you've talked about it in the past. It's so good. Repeat performance was produced at Eagle Lion Studios, which was a Poverty Row studio. They kind of specialized in film noir. They did T-Man, Raw Deal, Ruthless. I mean, Mm -hmm. that was sort of their forte. And this definitely falls under the film noir category. It's directed by a guy named Alfred Worker, who I wasn't too familiar with, but when I looked him up, he's been directing since The Silence, since 1917. Oh, wow. But he's probably best known for directing The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes in 1939. That was sort of his big picture. It was written by Walter Bullock, and it's based on a 1942 novel of the same name by William O'Farrell. So it's a really interesting, clever plot. The film starts pretty ominously on New Year's Eve 1946, 
And in the opening scene, we start with a bang, and, and I mean literally, oh. because you see Broadway actress Sheila Page, who's played by Joan Leslie, my love. Mm-hmm. Um, she shoots and kills her husband, Barney, who's played by Lewis Hayward. And you realize she's the heroine of the movie, but she just killed her husband. What's going on? How are they going to resolve that? How, where do you go from here? <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, it was in the heat of the moment, and she realizes what she's done, so she runs to find her friend, and I love his his character's name is William Williams. <laughs> and he's Bill sort, Billy. Yeah, and he's sort of this avant-garde, underemployed poet, because when you say poet, you're probably going to guess he's yeah, underemployed. Yeah, I'd say unemployed <laughs> poet, right? And he was played by the incredible, one of my favorite actors is Richard Basehart. Oh, I love him. And it was, it was his screen debut. It was his first film. Because he came from the Broadway stage. Mm -hmm. The first thing he ever did. Well, she runs to William Williams. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't know what to do. She's like, I just killed my husband. What am I going to do? Well, he suggests that they go and find their other friend, John Friday, played by Tom Conway, who we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast. And Tom Conway plays her Broadway producer. Because after you kill your husband... Who do you want to talk to but your producer? Your Broadway producer, (laughs) yes. So after this, Sheila and William, they go off to find John Friday at his apartment. They're on the way up the stairs, and Sheila's just having this moment. She says, I just can't believe I did this. I wish I could do everything over again. If I had it all to do over again, it would be different. And then all of a sudden, William's gone, and there's just a strangeness that you can almost feel. And she goes to John's door, and because of this magical element, Sheila has gotten the chance to relive the past year. So she's now... New Year's Eve the prior year, and she's going to get the chance to change the course of history, possibly, and keep these horrible things from happening. Because horrible things have happened to all the people in the film. Okay. And now she's in a position where she can possibly, if she can do the right thing, keep herself from shooting her husband, keep her poet friend William Williams from being put into an insane asylum, all of these all crazy these things. things. Hence the title. Yes. So hence the title. And it's very clever and it's done so well. And you're just kind of on the edge of your seat because you see that sometimes you can't not repeat history as mm-hmm. much as you want to. Right. Which is, I think, the theme of the movie that's done so well. Really clever. But the film also stars Virginia Field as Paula Costello. And she's this playwright who's having an affair with Sheila's husband, Barney, which is probably why she shoots him. And so part of it is, can, <laughs> Seems like a good reason. Yeah, can, can Sheila keep her husband away from Paula? You right. know, that becomes a big part of the plot. And the other important character is played by the wonderful Natalie Schaefer. Mm. Yes, Mrs. Howell from Gilligan's Island. We love her. And she plays Eloise Shaw. And she's this vapid socialite who bankrolls young, handsome male artists. And she gets her claws into William Williams, the okay. poet. Okay. Now, do you see... See Mrs. Howell in the young... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because as much as I love her, Mrs. Howell always played Mrs. Howell. Right, always played Mrs. Howell. And that was her... F- you know what? That's yeah. okay. That's what she did yeah. well. And she's so good in this movie. And she, you just love to hate her. And she's just awful. Um, <laughs> but you watch this woman very cognitively aware that she has this chance, one more chance to make things right. And you just see all the things that get in her way and all the hurdles and all the emotional connections that still push her in a certain way. I I don't want to give away the ending, but it's just a really great film noir with very thrilling elements to it. And I love just the magical element 
element to it, which was very rare for a film noir. Yeah, yeah. Some cool things about this movie that, according to The Hollywood Reporter, Walter Worker was not the first director chosen. It was actually Jules Dassin who did Reunion in France with Joan Crawford, and he got fired prior to production, and then Alfred Worker stepped in. Also, in the book by William O'Farrell, the Richard Basehart character, I just love saying his name, William Williams, mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a cross-dressing poet. Okay. So, of course, they cut out the cross-dressing for the movie because right. <laughs> it was 1947. Yeah, a little too um, early for that. But it would have been an interesting element to that it. That would have been. And then also, according to Variety, the world premiere of the film was held in May of 1947, and they decided to hold it in Zanesville, Ohio. Why is that? Because it was the hometown of Richard Basehart. Oh. And it was just sort of a publicity thing. They yes. thought, why not? It's his, it was it's his, his premiere. film debut. Yeah, his He's just big Broadway guy. He's finally coming to film. Let's honor him and hold it in this little I town in Ohio. I love that. Which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And one last kind of fun tidbit about this movie is they remade it, of course, as they always do, as a TV movie in 1989. And what they call it? <laughs> well, this one they called Turn Back the Clock. And who's in it? Well, it's, of course, the perfect 1989 cast. It's Connie Selica. Oh. David Dukes and Jerry Burns from Dear John. <laughs> oh, Jerry Burns. Yes. Yes yes yes, 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 yes. But the cool thing about the TV movie is they do give Joan Leslie a little cameo as one of the party guests. So it was kind of fun. Did to you, see. Have you seen it? I have seen it. Okay. I have seen yeah. it. And it's fun to see her as an older woman in this yes. movie that, of course, she made famous. So right. that's a little fun element to it. But it's a great movie. Really will keep you at the edge of your seat. Some really good acting. You get to see Mrs. Howell be an absolute horrible person, and you get to see the lovely Joan Leslie, who I loved. Okay. All right. We're going to watch it. Now, I think it's time for our Hollywood pop quiz. Steve? Well, keeping with the New Year's theme, the pop quiz of the day is in the 1960 film The Apartment, directed by the great Billy Wilder, the part of the sleazy boss <laughs> played Mr. by Sheldrick. Mr. Sheldrick, played by Fred McMurray, was originally offered to another actor who passed away unexpectedly before production. Who was the original actor? Who? Okay, no Googling allowed. We will be back with that answer and more New Year's Eve movies after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. All right, Steve and Ann will be right back, but first, another stop on the Hollywood tour. Now, you know how long it takes to shoot a feature film these days, right? Sometimes months of production are required. In fact, the film Eyes Wide Shut reportedly took 400 days of production. Well, D.W. Griffiths in Old California was shot back in 1910. It's widely considered the first film made in Hollywood. It was a racy short film about a Spanish woman played by Marion Leonard who has an illegitimate son with a man who later becomes the governor of California, played by Frank Powell. You want to take a guess how long it took to film? Hold on to your seats. It was shot in two days. 
And now back to Steve and Nan from Beneath the Hollywood Sign. Our email address is info at fombeneththehollywoodsign.com. And I wanted to share with our listeners a message that we got earlier this week oh, from good. Liz. We love messages. <laughs> I know. Now, Liz says, just listen to the Christmas movie podcast and loved and know every movie except the first one that Steve talked about. And I just want to say, you are my people, <laughs> which I love. We love Liz. <laughs> Liz says, I remember that show that Steve talked about, A House Without a Christmas Tree, being on TV every Aww. year, but could not for the life of me remember it. So she was really happy that we reminded Aww, I her. I love that. She says, I love old 40s movies. Now, she has a question for you. Ooh. Here's another one that I can't remember the name of and was hoping you could help me. It's Christmas and a store clerk has a persnickety boss. <laughs> she had to sell these rubber duckies? <laughs> anyway, someone left a baby on her doorstep oh. or maybe in the dressing room at the store and she doesn't know what to do. Of course, there's a man involved. <laughs> and then she says, sappy sweet Christmas movie, but I can't seem to find it. 1940s, I think. Anyway, love your work. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that movie that Liz is talking about might be, and it's Ginger Rogers from the 30s, and it might be a movie called Bachelor Mother, Okay. which I know that movie is about this working girl who comes into a baby, and there's all this confusion about whether she's an unwed mother, or, or and it's, just, it's a romantic comedy on top of that, but I think it might be that movie. It might be Bachelor Mother. Okay, Liz, let us know. Yes, please. <laughs> Check it out and let us know. No. My next film is one that I've seen the three different versions of this film that have been done, but the one I want to talk about specifically is Love Affair from 1939. Ah. Now, it's directed by Leo McCary, written by Delmer Daves, Donald Ogden Stewart, with story by Mildred Cram and Leo McCary. Mildred Cram was credited with the original story for Beyond Tomorrow, which oh, was in our holiday episode. Our holiday movie, yeah. yes. She was nominated for an Academy Award for Love Affair. And in addition to her film credits, she wrote some of the early television shows in the 50s. So that was interesting. The Ford Television Theater, General Electric Theater. She wrote an episode of Death Valley Days. Now, back to the director. We could do oh, a whole episode on Leo McCary. So great. A master director. I mean, it's said that he is responsible for the teaming of Laurel and Hardy. He was able to direct W.C. Fields and the Marx Brothers, and in the Marx Brothers case, in what is probably many people say their best film, Duck Soup, in yes, 1933. Yes, such a great movie. He's also said to have suggested the mirror scene in that movie. Oh. He won the Academy Award for his direction of The Awful Truth, which we've mentioned on this uh, podcast before. One of my before. favorite screwball comedies of all time. 1937, Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. And he received two more Oscars for writing and directing Going My Way, wow. which we've also talked about in 1944. <laughs> And it also won Best Picture that year. And then he followed that with The Bells of St. Mary's. I mean, the guy, that, oh, this is just a sliver of Could of do what no he's wrong. Done. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's funny no, how ahead. many movies of his we've talked about and probably haven't mentioned him. And yes. he's just such an icon. He really is. He really is. Now, getting back to the story, Love Affair, 1939, the original version stars the incomparable yes, Irene Dunn. The best. She plays Terry McKay, a singer, and Charles Boyer, who I can't quite <laughs> shake the smarmy, uh, awful <laughs> husband from Gaslight, who yes. just treated Ingrid Bergman so awfully. Oh, he was um, so good in that. But tab that, because, as you say, because there is a moment that he completely reinvents himself, for my heart anyway. <laughs> 
Now, the film also features one of this podcast's favorite character actors, Maria Ospenskaya. You know, I love that we have a podcast and we're into episode, what, 15? Okay. And we talk about Maria Ospenskaya so much. I love that about us. She's getting our due. She, I, I, long overdue. She was nominated, too, for yes, this film, for she, an Academy Award. As I said, the, the film itself was nominated for six Academy Awards. Now, here's the plot, and, and many of you may already know this, but a French painter and well-known ladies' man, Michel... <laughs> played by Boyer, meets an American singer, Terry, played by Dunn, and they meet on a ship crossing the Atlantic, and in those days, that took a long time. They're both already engaged to other people, but they begin to flirt and get to know each other, and of course, they begin to fall in love. Of course. The ship stops at the port in Madeira, where Boyer's grandmother lives, played by Maria <laughs> And she is this spiritual creature, and she just senses in Irene Dunn that she's the perfect match for her wandering eye grandson. And that kind of seals the deal for the two of them. They near the end of the trip, and they decide that in six months, they're going to meet at the top of the Empire State Building and see where their relationship is at. Plus, they've got a lot of messes to clean up with those. They do. Those two people they're engaged to, right? And Michelle, who's, like I said, this kind of philandering guy, and he's wealthy on his family money. He wants to find for himself if he can make a living as a painter. While Terry, Irene Dunn, needs to break off her engagement to Kenneth, and she also gets a contract to be a singer in Philadelphia for the next six months. So when the six months is up, Michelle indeed is at the top of the Empire State Building <laughs> waiting for Terry. He has a successful painting career. He's sold some oh, paintings. Such a moment. Yes, exactly. And Terry is on her way to meet Michelle and tragedy strikes. Of course Now, it if, does. I, if oh. I was Rita Wilson, I would be in tears right now, right? Um, you know, with that right. references. <laughs> Great reference. <laughs> I don't want to give anything away to anybody that hasn't seen it, but the beautifully played final scene with Dunn and Boyer. Oh, Boyer really does create, for me anyway, a different guy than yes. the horrible guy from Gaslight <laughs> that I mentioned. And Irene Dunn, in this performance, she is exquisite. Her ability to seemingly turn on a dime from a comedic moment to a moment of pathos, to passion, and yes. back to comedy. And she can do that in a single line of dialogue. Yes. And not to mention she's just an exquisite woman. Now, I'm not sure how many times this has happened, and maybe you'll know, Steve, but Leo McCary also wrote with the same writing team and directed the remake of Love Affair with Cary Grant and Deborah Carr, entitled, of course, An Affair to Remember in 1957. Yes. One of the differences, obviously, between the original Love Affair and Affair to Remember, aside from the cast, <laughs> is Love Affair is in black and white, and Affair to Remember is in cinemascope, full yes. color. Some people, some critics have said that the first film is much more successful because of the pairing of the two of them, that somehow the Cinemascope and Grant and Carr, even though they're a wonderful team together, yeah. somehow it lost its magic in the way that he opened up the filming of it with yes. the landscapes and the... I agree with that assessment. I, I, I think the chemistry between Charles Boyer and Irene Dunn is so palpable that that's just what makes that movie so incredible. Yeah, yeah. There was a third remake, which I've also seen in yeah. 1994, <laughs> with Warren Beatty and Annette Bening and Catherine. Catherine Hepburn. And Catherine Hepburn. And I love all three of those actors. 
I'm just going to leave it at that. Yes, enough um, said on that one. <laughs> it was directed by Glenn Gordon Karen, who had a huge television career yes. with things like Bull, which just recently stopped uh, shooting in 2022, Medium with Patricia Arquette. I mean, hundreds of episodes of television and Moonlighting. And of Moonlighting. Course, with Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis. So like I said, I've seen all three versions of these. And while I loves me some Cary Grant and Deborah Carr, <laughs> I think... Dunn's performance, if I were to order these, her performance puts the original just ahead of it in terms I for the order. totally agree. And I know I ask this question almost every podcast. How did Irene Dunn never win an Oscar? I know. I know. I wish she could win one posthumously. I know. I know. We know she did win a Kennedy Center honor, which is great. But, yeah, I wonder but, if that's on YouTube. I would love. I'd love to see, to see that. that. Yeah, that would be that would be wonderful. I think maybe listeners should watch all three and compare them and write a paper. <laughs> <laughs> it would be great. And you know who's really good in the Cary Grant Deborah Carr one is Kathleen Nesbitt, who plays the grandmother. Oh, she was wonderful. Well, that is Love Affair, nineteen thirty nine. Steve, what's your last film? My last one's a doozy. We've talked about it a little bit, and I think we talked about this on one of our promos for an episode. Okay. My last one, when you think of New Year's Eve, who doesn't think of the Poseidon Adventure? <laughs> oh my gosh. I love this film I so much. I do too. You know, it was 20th Century Fox. It was directed by Ronald Neem. It was produced by Irwin Allen, the master of disaster, mm -hmm. as he was lovingly called later. To me, he was like the P.T. Barnum of movie producers. He was big and over the top, and he just had such a vision. But he was kind of known for doing a lot of fantasy TV. Okay. I don't know if people knew this, but Irwin Allen gave us Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost oh, in Space. I did not know that. The Time Tunnel. Land of the Giants. I love Land of the Giants. Erwin Allen really created the disaster genre mm. because after the Poseidon Adventure, of course, he went on to do The Towering Inferno with Paul Newman and Steve yes. McQueen and Faye Dunaway. And he did that god-awful Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, <laughs> <laughs> oh, which was, I mean, again, all-star cast, which was his forte. Michael yes. Caine, Sally Field, Telly Savalas, Shirley Knight, Shirley Jones. I mean, he was the master of disaster indeed. But back to the Poseidon Adventure, it was written by Sterling Siliphant, who was a great writer who actually won the Oscar for writing In the Heat of the Night oh, in 1967. Wow. Yeah. And it was also co-written by Wendell Mays, who was Oscar nominated for Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, great you know, team. Really good writers. Mm -hmm. Mays took a crack at it first and they hated what he wrote. So they brought in Siliphant, who basically rewrote Mays is how okay. it worked, but they okay. both got screen credit. Okay. It's based on a 1969 novel of the same name by Paul Gallico, which was a big hit. I didn't realize that. And the novel is so different from the movie. Okay, it, I wondered. The characters are different. The outcome is a little bit different. Who lives and who dies mm -hmm. is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But I always have a special place in my heart for the Poseidon Adventure. And I know I've said this before, but it was the very first film I ever saw in a proper theater rather than a drive-in. <laughs> It really is instrumental in igniting my passion and love for film and mm, storytelling. I love that. And it's why I wanted to come to Hollywood. It's why I wanted to be a writer and a producer and, mm -hmm. a, and a storyteller. And I always just hoped that I would someday make people feel the way that I felt as a little boy sitting in the dark in the Malco Quartet in Memphis, Tennessee <laughs> in December of 1972 watching The Poseidon Adventure. I love that. It is not a perfect movie. There's cliched characters. Some of the dialogue of is atrocious. But what it offers in terms of just 
thrilling, exciting entertainment yes. is beyond reproach. Yeah, yeah. The plot's very simple. It's New Year's Eve, of course, and uh, the SS Poseidon is sailing away, and all of a sudden, they're struck by this 90-foot tidal wave, which capsizes the luxury liner. Well, inside, there's a group of survivors. They're led by this charismatic but sort of rebellious minister, Reverend Scott, who's played by Gene Hackman, and they decide to sort of not wait in the dining room with everybody else, but try to make their way through the ship to try to get to the hull, which is now, of course, on top. And that way, they're closer to any potential rescue. Right. So it's this very hodgepodge group of characters. And as I said, <laughs> some of them are stock characters, but it, it And works. some of them wear only like little underpants. <laughs> and, and it's like, hmm, I wonder who made them do that. It was all male producers, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the passengers who, who go along on this you know, trek with Gene Hackman there's Mike Rogo, who's an ex-New York City cop, and he's played by Ernest Borgnine. Oh, we love Ernest Borgnine. I know we do. And then there's his wife, Linda, who's an ex-prostitute who he married to keep off the streets. That's right. It's all coming back. Played by Stella Stevens. Yes. And Stella Stevens was born in Yazoo City, Mississippi, but she grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh so gosh. she was sort of regaled as the big hometown girl does good Had back in Had you ever Memphis. met her? I have met her. Okay. And in fact, I replaced her directing a play one time when I... Back in the early 90s, it's a long, complicated okay. story, but we ended up becoming sort of buddies, oh. and she was very helpful to me as I took over How directing wonderful. this play that she was supposed to direct. But the rest of the, the characters, you got the kindly Jewish grandparents on their way to Israel to meet their grandson for the first time, <sighs> Manny and Belle Rosen, played by the incomparable Jack Albertson and Shelley Winters. Shelley Winters. You got the lonely haberdasher, which I love that there's, they even call him a haberdasher. Which basically means a tailor. <laughs> yes. Yes. His name was James Martin. He was played by Red Buttons. You got the ship's hippy dippy singer, Nani, played by Carol Lindley. Yes. Then you've got this uh, waiter named Akers, played by Roddy McDowell. There's a teenage girl and her 10 year old brother. They're traveling to meet their parents, played by Pamela Sue Martin and Eric Shea. And then you've got an older, more traditional minister, played by Arthur O'Connell, who was in every movie ever made, and I love him. <laughs> And then you've got the doomed captain, played by Leslie Nielsen, long before he mastered the deadpan comic talent. So, of course, he became famous for in, right. you know, Airplane and Naked Gun and all those types of right. movies. Erwin Allen put together this incredible cast. And it has an amazing theme song. It was actually nominated for eight Academy Awards, and it won two one for special effects, and the other, it won for the song you mentioned, The Morning After. <sighs> Love that song. There's got to be a morning after. I want to sing it right now, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Maybe at the end. One thing that there's always a little bit of controversy about who sang the song in the movie. Okay. Yes. Thank you for yes. that, because I do not think it was Carol Lindley. Well, Carol Lindley always said it was her. that she sang it, but she had a little help from a, another singer that uh -huh. they sort of blended their voices. But I think the truth is, after a little research and, and talking to a few people, that Carol didn't sing that song. <laughs> she didn't. And Maureen McGovern didn't sing it either. No. In yeah. fact, Maureen was only hired to cut it as a single. Once right. they realized its popularity, they yeah. thought, well, let's get on the charts with this and you know release a single. But I got to give the woman her due. The woman who actually sang it in the movie was just sort of a session singer, and her name was Renee Armand. So okay. good on you, Renee. Renee, I prefer your version to Maureen. To Maureen. Really? I do. I think it's wow. so... 
easy and I don't know. Hippy dippy, like the it's character. It's kind of hippy dippy. Yes. Maybe I'm just more in the story than I am thinking about the song as a standalone, but I loved her version of it. Yeah, I did too. But it's funny. She's just recently sort of gotten her due for singing that song. Oh, good. I kind of think Carol kind of hogged the spotlight for yeah. a while and said that she sang it, which yeah. I don't think you sang it, Carol. Yeah. Um, but Poseidon Adventure was a huge box office monster. It ended up being the number one film of the year. It's become a cult classic. Uh, you know, to this day, I have a movie poster of the Poseidon Adventure in my house <gasps> because it means that much, that to, much me. to you. And yes. I remember as a kid, I would study that movie poster and I would look at the characters and I would watch Gene Hackman and Stella Stevens and Ernest Borden running towards you. And I would look at those people hanging from tables and falling in the air and explosions. Right. And, it was and the, insane. And really just the perspective. It yes. was so interesting watching it as a young person yes. because you you keep thinking, okay, wait, how are they? Oh, yeah. Everything's <laughs> upside down. Yeah. Well, to me, I think it should have gotten more love for its cinematography because the way they did the camera tilts, I know that they built the dining room set on a soundstage that would elevate like 45 degrees, but it was oh, really? all about camera angles and turning the camera as actors and stunt people would just pr project themselves onto these mats just so it looked like they were falling through the air as it was turning up. Okay. It was genius, genius camera Yeah, because they didn't have CGI. They didn't yeah. have anything that they have now. And that's the beauty. And I, and I love that it got the special Oscar for special effects because yeah. it was long before CGI. Right. And you watch it today and it holds up completely. Yeah. All right. Uh, another cool thing about it i thought was the costumes um, you know 1970s at its <laughs> finest you've got the tuxedos with the big collars out yes. the here and you Orange know the, the costume designer was a guy named and it was sort of Irwin allen's go-to guy his name was paul zastopnovich but the two things that i love most about the costumes <laughs> stella stevens dress which was gene harlow inspired white satin dress and yes. it comes at one point they all figure they have to climb this 50-foot christmas tree and you can't climb a christmas tree in a dress so what do you got to do you got to take the dress off you got to rip it off baby <laughs> And one of my favorite moments is, of course, when Gene Hackman's character goes to her and says, Mrs. Rogo, you can't climb in that dress. And then, of course, Mike Rogo, her husband, goes insane. And <laughs> she doesn't have anything underneath. And, of course, Stella's character, the ex-prostitute, who's seen it all, done it all, she just looks and she goes, just panties. What else do I need? <laughs> Classic. Classic line. Oh, I'm going to remember that line. <laughs> and then also, I, I, it was genius to have Pamela Sue Martin's character have this long red velvet skirt. And of course, the minute she has to climb a tree, she just unbuttons a couple of buttons and suddenly there's hot pants underneath this big skirt. <laughs> genius costume design. Genius. Genius. <laughs> so that is my last... New Year's Eve movie. Oh, it's a classic. It has my heart. It just talking about it makes me so <laughs> want to see it again. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to do that. Very yeah, soon. and Shelley Winters was Oscar nominated. That's yes. wonderful. Well, I think it's time for the answer to our Hollywood pop quiz. Yes, and our question was in the 1960 New Year's Eve themed movie The Apartment, directed by Billy Wilder. Who was the actor originally supposed to play the sleazy boss, Mr. Sheldrake, played by Fred McMurray? Well, the answer is the wonderful actor Paul Douglas. Ah. And unfortunately, Paul Douglas passed away prior to production rather unexpectedly. So Fred McMurray was sort of a last-minute replacement, and he was so good. He was, and he's nothing like the father that he plays in My Three Sons. Nothing. Well, Steve, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Nan. I'm looking forward to more stories that we're going to tell in the new year. I am too. And we'd love it if you would follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. 
YouTube with the handle at from beneath the Hollywood sign. And also, if you have any questions or comments, or if you just want to write and tell us who your favorite character was in the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Please email us. You can catch us at info at from beneath the Hollywood sign.com. That's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schneble. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit AirwaveMedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow End with Schneble and Toth. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. That's a wrap. Thank you.